Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And uh, I guess tonight we start with a kind of um, apology and explanation. Uh, the The podcasts haven't been coming out at the, the normal rate of uh, at least one, sometimes two or more uh, a, a week. Um, uh, it looks like I have, in fact, actually been struck down with a mild version of the coronavirus early in the year. I, I wondered what that uh, rather unpleasant flu-like uh, occurrence was. Uh, and I've been suffering from uh, a long period of post-viral exhaustion, so uh, some weeks I'm kind of taking several afternoons just to, to, just to rest and to, to sleep. Um, so, uh, yeah, apologies. I know there are lots of people that enjoy the podcast, and we will get back to uh, normal, but I have to take it slightly easier um, than, than, I, than I normally do. That said, we're going to look tonight at a really interesting topic area. Um, as you have probably picked up in this podcast before, I greatly enjoy the work of Sheila Fitzpatrick, and we've been looking at um, everyday Stalinism and looking at the, 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 the nuances of private life and public life in the Soviet Union. Uh, and one of the ways of uh, looking at everyday life is obviously through the prism of families. Um, we, we've looked at um, what life was like within Soviet families and the uh, difficulties of poor housing and shortages and that kind of thing. But tonight we're going to look at children. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a truism that the way a society treats its children tells you uh, an awful lot. And the combined effects of um, an already um, str- uh, struggling uh, and backward society uh, prior to the revolution, um, the a catastrophic civil war and famine just following the revolution, 
and then a prolonged period of uh, economic hardship following um, the decision uh, to pursue forced industrialisation um, at the end of the 1920s and into the 1930s uh, presents all sorts of uh, opportunities for uh, children to be neglected, to be forgotten, to be uh, abandoned. And uh, here we're going to look at how the Soviet state responded to the challenge of the abandoned child. And Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, The upbringing of children is normally considered women's business, uh, and so it was in, the Soviet, in Soviet Russia in the 1930s. It was women, not men, who wrote again and again to the authorities, asking for help for their children. Barefoot and hungry. It was women, who too, um, women too who occasionally despaired and wrote to the authorities, begging them to have their children taken into state care or adopted as mascots by army regiments. It was, women who, on, uh, it was a woman who, on hearing her younger child cry for bread after two weeks of hunger in the winter of 1936, 37, um, got up and went down into the kitchen and ended her life. It was even a woman, a widowed Kolkhoz chairman and two young children, who cabled the regional party secretary that if bread was not sent, she would be obliged to abandon the children and the Kolkhoz and run away. Um, the pressures on uh, particularly women um, and particularly women, uh, peasant, uh, women uh, of poorer backgrounds, uh, was immense. Um, they had not only a, a traditional um, uh, patriarchal expectation upon them to provide care for their, for their children, but following a, a brief period of liberation in terms of gender roles shortly after the revolution, a social conservatism descended back on Russia during the Stalin era um, and any chance that women might be liberated from their traditional gender roles was, uh, was, was um, dis dismissed. If women were of course the, the main providers of childcare uh, then it would be logical that they're also the ones who would be held um, primarily responsible by the state for any neglect that occurred. This was the case sometimes, though it was uh, more common to find that it was stepmothers who were charged with cruelty and neglect than uh, natural mothers. Um, there were some cases where men incurred blame, um, or more of the blame than women, though that was rare. But overall, the, the scope of the problem of child neglect and child abandonment in Russia during the 1930s was immense. Because, of course, you have a, an immensely mobile society. You have a geographically mobile. You have um, peasants encouraged to work in towns and cities. You have families torn apart by um, the state uh, and uh, children of dubious class origins um, left without parents or perhaps even criminalised themselves and you have uh, mass mobilisation of um, families, uh, sometimes entire communities, uh, sent in, into exile. And they, there is of course a, another huge problem and it's a housing problem 
that in Russia there are families who are forced, not out, uh, out of sheer desperation, to split their children up and send them to other relatives because there isn't enough room for them in the cramped housing that is on offer. Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, Housing was a key factor in one of the more vexing cases of child neglect and abuse encountered by party leaders and judicial authorities. Rosa Vasilieva was a 14-year-old Moscow school girl in 1936 when she wrote uh, an earnest letter to Stalin suggesting a child tax to be paid by all Soviet citizens from the state, um, from which the state would pay each child a stipend from birth to the age of 18. This was to protect children from, the, uh, from, um, protect children from possible neglect and abuse by their parents. Although Rosa, uh, Rosa's letter was couched in abstract terms and contained no direct personal appeal, she did indicate that she had first-hand knowledge of problems associated with divorced parents and contested living, um, and contested living space. Perhaps this was what caught the eye of Stalin's uh, assistant, Poskrebyshev, and prompted him to forward the letter to Andrei Vashinsky, a legal expert um, who was deputy head of the Council of People's Commissars. Vashinsky, uh, for context, was the judge at the show trials of Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin uh, and others and uh, who uh, violently berated them uh, from his, uh, his position. Wojcinski um, had the Moscow City Prosecutor's Office investigate Rosa's situation and a sad story emerged. Like so many sad Soviet stories, it revolved around housing. Rosa and her parents had once lived together in a room of 11 square metres. Then her parents got divorced and Rosa stayed on in the room with her father, Alexander Vasilyev. When his job took him outside Moscow, he found a woman, Vronskaya, to look after Rosa on a living basis. But the militia would not register Vronskaya as a separate occupant because the room was too small. So, as he later explained, he was forced to marry her to get her registered. The prosecutor's office put almost all the blame for Rose's subsequent sufferings on Vronskaya. A hysterical personality, they wrote, who in her father's absence abused Rosa, interrupted her homework, refused to allow her to have a bed, and finally, one month after obtaining her own registration as a resident, tried to throw her out on the street. A battle royale of competing eviction orders then ensued between Vronskaya Vronskaya, Rosa's father and Rosa's mother. The orders were all ignored and after three years of effort, when Rosa was in her last year of high school or already graduated, Vyshinsky finally gave up on the case. What seems interesting in this story is that the three adults, Rosa's father, Rosa's mother and the um, then stepmother Vronskaya, all issued competing eviction orders uh, that uh, trying to uh, evict um, one of the three uh, individuals, uh, Rosa, Vronskaya and her father, from the flat, um, all seemingly cancelling one another out and creating a kind of illegal chaos. And legal chaos is only really possible because of uh, what it is the law says. Um, and there must have been all manner of chaos within 
the uh, Soviet laws regarding residencies, flats uh, and evictions. Um, and in the middle, the, the child, Rosa, is, is the one that suffers. Um, and so there, there is a, quite a degree of culpability of the state here in creating the circumstances whereby uh, duplicitous uh, relatives or uh, step-parents could um, uh, apply for evictions um, of children, of stepchildren, um, and the state appears to be to have very little ability to do much uh, about it. Um, the most famous of all child neglect cases in the mid 1930s was the Gator case, uh, publicly publicised in the Labour newspaper Trud, uh, and the subject of a show trial in a large Moscow factory. Uh, so she Fitzpatrick runs. This was the case. Uh, this was a case of problems associated with divorce and remarriage rather than housing. Gator Kashtanova was uh, born in Bezitsa um, in 1930 to Kashtanov, um, a technician, and Vasilyeva, a worker. They had met and married in 1929 at the Red Profintern plant. Around the time of Gator's birth, Kashtanov left. Vasilyeva tried to trace him to get child support payments, but was unsuccessful. Not wanting or able to bring up the child herself, she handed her over to her mother. After a time, Vasilyeva married again, uh, a communist named Smolyakov, who had a good job in the trade unions, and they had two children. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And the grandmother became ill and sent Gator, age five, back to her mother. The Smolyakovs had moved to Kaluga, where Smolyakov was the editor of a newspaper. He was well paid, and they kept a servant, Malusia, in their three-room apartment, which was spacious by Soviet standards for a household of six. But Vasilyeva did not want Gator, um, whom she evidently disliked, and started to beat her. Smolyakov did not join in, but neither did he interfere to protect the child. 
Somehow, at this point, Vasilieva learned the address of her former husband, Kashtanov, now an engineer living in Moscow. She decided to solve the problem by sending the child to live with her father. Accordingly, the servant Marussia took Gaeta up to Moscow to Kashtanov's address. But Kashtanov refused to take it, saying that his apartment was too small and he did not earn enough to support himself and the child. The child's return provoked a new outburst of rage for Vasilieva, and she once again started to beat Gaeta. Then she ordered Marussia to take Gaeta to Kashtanov's a second time and abandon her on the street if he refused to take her in. She told Gaeta, Auntie Marussia is going to leave you. Don't cling to her. If you come back, I will kill you. The urgency of Vasilieva's desire to get rid of the child was evidently related to the fact that Smolyakov had gone to a new job in Milerovo, uh, much further from Moscow, and she was about to, to follow him, minus Gator. On the evening of January the 21st, 1935, Marussia and Gator turned up again on Kashtanov's doorstep. Again, Kashtanov refused to take her, though he did escort the two to a bus stop and give them a ruble for the fare. This was presumably not a happy position for Marussia either, since as a result of Vasilieva's departure for Milirevo, she was unemployed as well, um, uh, as a burden with responsibility for um, as burden with responsibility for Gaeta. So Marussia followed Vasilieva's orders, taking Gaeta to a toy shop, and then, according to one account, vanishing into the crowd. According to another account, Gaeta was left knowingly and did not object because her mother told her the nanny uh, told the nanny if Gator came back she would suffocate or poison her. Four days later Gator was brought into the twenty second precinct of the Moscow militia, dirty and ragged. The gay, uh, the girl said that she had no passport to write in official uh, reports. Her mummy lived in Bejitsa um, and that and that she didn't know anything about her daddy and that she was hungry. A pencilled note found on her read Gator Castanova uh, five years old. Father is an engineer living in the 11th lane of Marina Roshka, no, um, number 30, apartment 2. He drove the girl out to the street. Have pity on her, good people. Following the script established by this note, the militiamen tried to persuade Kashtanov to take the child. Kashtanov continued to refuse, and a highly coloured report in truth tagged him as the villain of the piece. Let engineer Kashtanov be brought to justice. On the same day, the district prosecutor announced that he was bringing charges against Kashtanov under the art Article 158 of the Criminal Code, and Kashtanov was arrested. So the investigation proceeded, um, and the attention eventually switched to Vasilevia, um, as uh, well as uh, you might expect, um, on the evidence. Um, she was uh, arrested on May the 6th, and by the time um, the case came to court, she'd become the main defendant, um, with uh, Kashtanov and Malusia, also charged with neglect and abuse, but to a lesser extent. The trial was then held as a show trial um, in the club of the uh, Trigonia uh, textile plant in July, where a woman prosecutor um, and an, an audience consisting largely of women workers from the plant um, uh, brought a huge amount of public attention 
to, um, to what was occurring. She was originally, um, uh, the prosecutors originally demanded a three-year sentence for Vasilevia, but she managed to get away without a prison sentence at all. Uh, her husband, her ex-husband, got six months in prison and was um, ordered to pay 125 rubles a month, which was over a third of his salary, to Gator's grandmother, um, who once again uh, acted as her guardian. After the sentence was uh, pronounced, the audience of women uh, remained in the hall and a unanimous cry of too little was heard. The prosecutor then took to the floor again and said she would petition for a more severe law for people who do not pay child support, meaning, of course, men. And that was the, this seems to be the, 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 the key point that the audience was most angry about. It wasn't so much about child abandonment as about uh, refusals to pay for child support. Um, and here we see a, a very interesting snapshot of the, 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 the tensions and uh, often resentments that existed within Soviet family life um, and the uh, general view of many women that uh, the errant husband um, who or the kind of the, the, the no good uh, unreliable husband uh, was the always the, the kind of the villain of the piece. The reaction to the case, um, uh, as Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, the rea reaction to the Gator case suggests that women's resentment against men's refusal to recognise the family, with family responsibilities, ran deep. This was presumably recognised by the authorities, as witnessed by the decision to hold a show trial with a female prosecutor before an audience of female workers, um, around the same time as the Gator case, a much less serious propaganda event, uh, with a somewhat similar message was held in a Leningrad publishing house. In this case, no child abuse had occurred, and the family in the spotlight was clearly prosperous, even enlightened. The event consisted of a report by a communist, Comrade Zharinov, um, an official at the publishing house, on how he brings up his children. The report focused on his inadequacies. I must confess, said Zharinov, that up to this time, I paid very little attention to the upbringing of my children. I became particularly aware, uh, acutely aware of this now when I am telling the comrades about my life as a communist father. In our family, up to this time, the arrangement was that my wife alone concerned herself with the upbringing of the children, and I had almost nothing to do with it. The, uh, and here, what we're seeing is a, a kind of like a self-criticism session, uh, which was um, commonplace in Stalinist Russia. Um, the, the audience began to question. Uh, they asked, is your daughter a pioneer? Do, uh, your, do, um, does the child see people drunk in the family? Do the parents use bad language in front of the children? Do the child, uh, does the child have its separate dishes to eat from? With whom do your children socialise? Who are their closest friends? What grades did the children receive in school for the second quarter and so on? Jaranov was uh, unable to answer any of these questions. Uh, he did not know how his children were doing in school or what they did in their free time. As a result, he was sharply criticised by the audience for bringing up his children badly. The strange thing about the story is that uh, Zharinov's wife 
um, present at the meeting with their daughter Lida, was not criticised at all, um, and was uh, barely mentioned in, in the discussion at all. So this could imply that uh, possibly she had been uh, part of the, the kind of this much more, much less extreme form of neglect, but a kind of um, uh, perhaps a sort of a, an emotional neglect. Um, but a, perhaps a more plausible reading was that the intended message of this meeting was that it was, that it was men, not women, who were inclined to neglect their children and should change their ways. Sharonov's um, wife's moment and his daughter leaders presumably came at the happy end of the meeting when Comrade Sharonov, he says, uh, and his family enlisted in the competition for the best upbringing of children. So there was there were there were these kinds of pressures on uh, Soviet families. Many of the decisions taken that you, you heard about here um, were based uh, as a as a result of uh, economic crisis. They they're remarkably similar to the sorts of stories one would hear in, in Victorian England um, of uh, people having to uh, abandon children or send them away due to overcrowding or, or hunger. Um, and the, the thing we'll look at next, and there isn't time for it right now, but we'll, we'll move on to next, are the actual um, homeless children, the orphaned children, and the street gangs that emerged uh, as a result of the, the Russian Civil War uh, and the, 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 the poverty of the Stalin era. One thing that always kind of stands out when you read Sheila Fitzpatrick is that the, the official vision of a, a well-ordered, you know, an authoritarian, brutal, but ultimately disciplined and well-ordered society um, that you well, one gets from a kind of more more simple version of, of Soviet history is is really not there um, that you have a, a bureaucratic and sometimes uh, often quite weak state in a way um, that seems to be very um, challenged when attempting to control to shape and to develop. Um, in whatever way it, it sees fit, uh, and quite an anarchic society, uh, a society riven with trauma um, that faces often impossible uh, economic uh, dilemmas, and that has a, a, a kind of a, a deep sense of, uh, of um, lawlessness and a, uh, a view of, of law and authority that it is um, an almighty inconvenience that must be uh, avoided, circumvented uh, and um, uh, circumnavigated at, at all costs. This is the, the, the kind of the, the essence of, of, of Sheila Fitzpatrick's writing. Um, but I like it anyway. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there, but thanks so much for listening, everybody. And uh, like I said, you know, we'll be uh, back to full steam at some point in the not-too-distant future. But I hope wherever you are, you're safe and well, and all is good, and I'll catch you all soon. Take good care now. All the best. Bye-bye.